If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, good afternoon, folks. Let's get to it. Rob Breckenridge with you on what's going to be a very, uh, I think, uh, eventful and a busy Monday afternoon. It is, of course, Election Day in Canada. We'll have the latest on the voting happening uh, right across the country as Canadians elect a new government. It is also Vaccine Passport Day here in Alberta. The new restriction exemption program officially begins today in Alberta. I think amid some confusion, some controversy, but we'll have the latest on that. Uh, plenty of other stuff to get to here this afternoon. Your phone calls, your tax, 403-974-8255. I want to begin this afternoon, though, with some important news on what's going to be a, a, a major step as we attempt to get to a, a much higher level of population-wide immunity. We've got a big section of the population that currently isn't eligible to get vaccinated. That may soon change. Pfizer announcing today some really positive results in their trials for the 5 to 11-year-old set. Remember, this uh, vaccine is approved in Canada and the U.S. for those 12 and up. Uh, And so the safety profile, the immune response in the 5 to 11 age group looks really good. Statement from Pfizer Canada today. They say it plans on filing the data to Health Canada to support a potential authorization in children 5 to 11 years of age, but can't provide specific timelines at this time. So joining us to talk a bit more about uh, what this all potentially represents, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Isaac Bogans, uh, infectious disease physician and scientist based out of the Toronto General Hospital. Dr. Bogans, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me back on. So a lot of people, I think, have been waiting, eagerly awaiting to, to see this data from Pfizer. What, what jumps out to you? Well, I mean, it's glad that their studies are wrapping up. I think that's, that's positive. And we, we don't really know much. In all fairness, they have a press release basically saying they didn't see any safety signals in the, uh, in the study and that uh, these 5 to 11-year-olds mounted a pretty impressive immune response comparable to the older age cohorts. That's all we got. Right. I don't think this comes to anyone's surprise. I think they're going to submit that data pretty quickly to the FDA and to other uh, regulatory bodies. And those regulatory bodies will look at the data and either give it the thumbs up or the thumbs down. What we're not going to see in this data set is rare complications. And some people were hoping to see what the true incidence of the inflammation of the heart is. That's called myocarditis. You're not going to see that in a study of 2,200 kids. You need a much larger study, or quite frankly, the more likely scenario is we call this the phase four clinical trial, also known as post-marketing surveillance, is when these are are integrated into real-world practice, you still are following this closely, and you can see what the true incidence of a rare outcome is, like the inflammation of the heart. How is the vaccine different for children? It's still a two-dose vaccine, correct? But is it it's a smaller dose? Yeah, that's right. It's a third of the dose, but it's uh, two doses. They separated them by... 21 days, just like they did with the adults. But yep, a third of the dose in, in that population. And again, I, sorry, I didn't mean to, I, I don't know if I actually answered your first question. It's exciting. It's good. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a step closer to vaccinating a larger segment of the population. Kids can still get sick from this. They don't 
get as sick as adults pound for pound. They, they're, it's much less likely for kids to get very sick, but they still can get sick. I mean, look at the southern United States where many of these states let the virus run amok. And, uh, you know, even though a small proportion of kids get very sick, a small proportion of a very large number of kids ends up being a lot of kids. And that's why we saw some of their pediatric hospitals overwhelmed down there. Right. And I think that's important to keep in mind that it, that it is about protecting kids. It's also about broader societal protection in controlling the amount of spread. It, it is a different calculation, though, I think, isn't it? Because in, in, in approving anything, we, we look at uh, cost and benefit. And we do that, that risk analysis. And so when we think about how kids are impacted by COVID, how, how does that change that analysis when we're looking at approving a vaccine? Well, I, I really, so a couple points. One is I completely agree with you about we have to think about individual safety and protection of the kid, and we have to think about broader societal protection and vaccinating a larger segment of the society to bring the burden of COVID-19 down. But when we take a step back and when we're making individual decisions, if you're a parent and you have a kid, you're probably not thinking, I'm going to do this for the good of society. You really want to know, is my kid going to be at risk getting this? Yeah. And what is the level of protection my kid's going to have from getting this? Those are the questions that you're probably thinking or parents are probably thinking, and rightfully so. Mm-hmm. And the answer is, listen, kids obviously are at lower risk of severe outcomes from COVID-19 than adults, but that doesn't mean severe outcomes don't happen. They do. They do. It's less common, but they do happen. Just like with influenza. I mean, we vaccinate kids for influenza routinely and we recommend it but severe outcomes in kids of course can happen it's just much less common compared to for example elderly uh, or immunocompromised communities and we vaccinate for influenza as well so we do vaccinate uh, for low low uh, but potentially high risk low what i'm trying to say low frequency but potentially high risk events right now, in terms of this actually being approved for the, you know, the, the 5 to 11 age group, I mean, it's obviously not happening tomorrow. It's probably not happening this month, maybe not even next month. But what, what's your sense of how far off we are now? Well, my guess is between Halloween and Christmas, maybe. Yeah. I think something like that. I wouldn't be surprised. You know, probably later 2021 and at the latest early 2022. And it's interesting. I mean, we know that some parents are very, very eager to do this. We already know that some parents are not eager to do this. I think we're going to need some very sound communication from our senior public health experts on this because it's important for people to make an informed decision about, you know, what the benefits of this are, what the potential, you can't ignore the side effects. You can never ignore the side effects. We have to talk about what the knowns are, what the unknowns are, and really enable people to make a decision. I think we're going to see a lot of people vaccinated. Like you, you can imagine, this is going to help create safer schools. This is going to help create safer extracurricular activities like dance class or hockey practice or art class. Like this really will do a lot of good for for kids. And also we we can't think of kids in a vacuum, right? They're going to go home to parents or grandparents. They might have an immunocompromised person they're in close contact with. Like there's a lot of good that a vaccine like this can do when it's rolled out. Well, and speaking of grandparents, speaking of the immunocompromised, obviously the conversation is happening right now around booster shots. The United States looks as though they're going to move toward offering boosters to those 65 and up. Sounds like President Biden's going to get his booster, maybe even uh, live on television. Where's Canada at and, and where should we be at on this question? I think we've been taking a rather cautious approach. And quite frankly, I'm kind of glad that we've taken this cautious approach. We're really following the data. So 
Canada is currently, depending on what province you're in, we're vaccinating third doses in immunocompromised populations and also in um, frail elderly populations like residents of long-term care. That's smart. That makes sense. You know, we may see that expand to community-dwelling seniors, and that wouldn't be unreasonable as well. But remember when the United States, this was like mid-August, it was only a few weeks ago, we were hearing from the United States saying, everyone is going to get a booster vaccine. And, and we're going to do this at eight month mark. No, wait a minute. We're going to do it at the six mark mark. Six month mark. No, no, wait a minute. We'll do it at the eight month mark. Like, what were they thinking? <laughs> like, this was terrible, terrible public communication. This was not grounded in science. I, like, it was kind of shocking to hear that rhetoric publicly from very senior officials. And then they had these FDA meetings. They scaled it way back saying, okay, let's, let's look at the actual data here. Let's have a, critical appraisal of the data, and they came up with what they came up with. We'll see what the FDA ends up deciding, but it's going to be significantly scaled back than everybody 12 and up gets a booster at seven months or eight months, which was ridiculous. We'll leave it there. Always appreciate the insight. Dr. Bogosh, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. You will. Have a good one. All the best. Uh, that's uh, Dr. Isaac Bogosh, infectious disease phys- physician and scientist based out of the Toronto General Hospital. So his thoughts on what we're seeing from Pfizer today, you're going to see that application very soon here. looks like in Canada for some authorization uh, for that vaccine in children 5 to 11 years of age. It's a smaller dose, as he mentioned. It's still a two-dose regimen spread out by, by 21 days. Uh, the initial data, as it appears, at least as they're reporting, uh, very favorable safety profile, very favorable in terms of immune response. So keep an eye on that. Uh, Not necessarily imminent, but uh, certainly calendar 2021 seems very reasonable for that approval. And the booster shot uh, conversation, uh, that's a little different. He's right. Canada is taking a more cautious approach on this and watching to see what the data is telling us. And what is it we're most worried about? Are we worried about keeping people out of hospital? Are we worried about breakthrough infections? Uh, Do we overreact, uh, you know, in, in... in trying to prevent uh, the, the former as opposed to the latter. Well, good afternoon. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you on this Monday afternoon, a pretty pivotal and important Monday afternoon. It's a weird coincidence, isn't it? Uh, that we've got the federal election on the same day that Alberta's new vaccine passport system or restriction exemption program comes into effect. And, you know, in a weird way, I mean, Alberta has cast a shadow on this federal election. And the federal election, I think, has cast a shadow on the situation here in Alberta. I think it's one of the reasons why Premier Jason Kenney kept such a low profile uh, through most of August. And um, maybe something he'll, he'll come to regret. It certainly appears as though the situation in Alberta has been a real factor in this campaign. Something the liberals have tried to capitalize on, linking Aaron O'Toole to, to Jason Kenney. Uh, the announcement last week of this vaccine passport system and, and just, you know, the whole state of affairs in Alberta was pretty awkward for Aaron O'Toole as he um, avoided questions about how he feels about all of this and whether he still supports the job Jason Kenney has been doing in Alberta. Maybe one of the reasons why uh, things seem so quiet on the political front in Alberta. We've seen in the past MLAs in the UCP caucus more than willing to voice their displeasure with decisions made by the premier. And how many of those are waiting until tomorrow? 
Well, joining us for some thoughts on the Alberta factor in this campaign, very pleased to welcome to the program. Uh, someone is uh, going to be awfully busy over the next uh, few days here. We appreciate him making some time for us. Dwayne Brad is a professor of political science at uh, Mount Royal University. Dwayne, great time to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks, Rob. So you, you've followed many elections, covered many elections. In terms of Alberta's uh, relevance, is, is this really unique? Yes. Um, I think the one time that a lot of attention has been played, at least by one party, one leader, was, was in 2015. Uh, Justin Trudeau actually uh, spent a fair bit of time in, in Calgary and was rewarded with two seats, which doesn't sound like a lot, but given that they hadn't won in Calgary in 50 years, that was pretty significant. Uh, I think the 1993 race also got a lot of attention as as the Reform Party swept the PCs in in almost every riding, and the Liberals uh, picked up a a couple. But in general, people don't really pay much attention to to Alberta. Uh, The leaders don't come here. Alberta issues aren't really uh, discussed uh, in detail, and and the reason for that is the Conservatives win, you know, so many of the seats that they just take it into the bag, right? So in a sense, it is taken into account because they don't have to campaign here, mm-hmm. right? So it, it matters to the Conservatives that they can lock up 30 seats right off the bat. But this year, it is different, and it's not in a way that we wanted to. The leaders still haven't come here. Uh, Aaron O'Toole never came to Calgary. Justin Trudeau never went to Edmonton. Uh, Maxime Bernier, on the other hand, probably spent two weeks here. So, uh, but the, the issue of COVID, that has become a national story, and it is going to have an impact, not just in Alberta, but, but across the, uh, by across the country. And I would say it wasn't so much Kenny's announcement on Wednesday as the situation that forced Kenny to make an announcement on Wednesday. So if you were to have an imaginary, you know, planet Earth number two, and Kenny doesn't speak on Wednesday and doesn't bring in a vaccine mandate and a vaccine passport, but instead, Dr. Yao is um, uh, canceling elective surgeries and is uh, shutting down operating rooms in children's hospitals to move resources. And you've got calls for the military to come in and support the healthcare system. And you've got spiking hospitalizations and spiking deaths. And you're requesting other provinces to take patients. And you're requesting other provinces to send us doctors and nurses. That would still be a really big issue. In fact, it would even be bigger because of Kenny's absence. Yeah, well, I think you're right. And I I think the Liberals have have certainly tried to capitalize on that. It's a high-profile conservative premier with a low approval rating overseeing a pretty bad situation at the moment. Uh, But I do wonder, I mean, you mentioned the People's Party and, you know, to to what extent they might capitalize on on some of this, right? I mean, you know, the anger around the vaccine passport, etc., I don't know. What do you think about that fact? Oh, I, I, I think they have. I, the, the PPC ran in 2019 and got less than 2% of the vote. They have kept the same platform as 2019. You know, get rid of the CBC, get rid of foreign aid, you know, put a ban on, on immigration, get rid of multiculturalism, get rid of bilingualism, get rid of, uh, you know, corporate welfare, try to balance the budget. But what is different and what has mobilized the crowds has been 
anti-COVID restrictions, anti-masks, and now anti-vaccine mandates. Because Bernier was doing tours before the election campaign and was drawing crowds. And, and these people were uh, having demonstrations right across the, the country for at various times over the last year, year and a half, even without Bernier. And he's tapped into that. I don't know if it's enough for him to win a seat here. I don't even know if it's enough for him to play a, a spoiler role. But it has a political impact because tomorrow we'll have a new government, uh, or at least a new same government, uh, whatever federal or provincial government that wants to deal with COVID restrictions is going to have to respond to people that are voting for the PPC. Yeah, but it also seems to me, I mean, here in Alberta, uh, you know, those who are not necessarily mainstream conservatives, uh, that the, the, the People's Party, I think, is more than squeezed out the Maverick Party. The COVID culture war stuff seems much more relevant than the, the Western alienation stuff. Yeah, no one's talking stuff. about Tripoli no. Senate and alienation. Right. Yeah, the, the Mavericks are, um, are, are quite quiet right now, and the PPC has dominated that. And you may think that even in some of these ridings, let's say they're not getting 8%. Let's say they're getting 15 to 20% in parts of rural Alberta, which is not out of the realm of possibility. They're still not going to win those win those seats because the conservatives win with 70 or 80 percent so blake richards in in banff airdrie won with 80 percent of the vote now he might win with 55 percent of the vote so the seat isn't in danger but the politics around um covid are and while they may be at eight percent or ten percent i don't think they're that support in skyview Right. I don't think there are people in Skyview, even if they agree on vaccinations, are going to say, yeah, we're going to vote for the anti-immigrant, anti-multicultural party. I don't think people in Calgary Centre are, are going to do that. But there are ridings in Ontario which could uh, flip as a result of the PPC vote. That doesn't mean the PPC will win it, but they may take enough from the Conservatives to allow the Liberals to, to be victorious. Now, here in Alberta, I, I think the federal election, as I said in the introduction, I, I think it was one of the reasons why Kenny was trying to keep a low profile. Maybe it's also a reason why members of its caucus have kept a low profile over the last week. What's your sense of what awaits the premier after today? We're, we, we are hearing evidence that there was some sort of deal struck between the O'Toole team and the Kenny team, as well as Doug Ford. I mean, Doug Ford in Ontario, uh, disappeared for the 2019 election. In this case, he's actually prorogued the legislature in Ontario, and there's been no Doug Ford sightings. Uh, I think I had done a count in the first 30 days of the federal campaign. There had been two appearances of, of Jason Kenney. Now, some of that was because he was on vacation, but maybe the timing of that vacation was related to the federal election call. Uh, and then he reemerged last Wednesday simply because I don't think he had a choice. I, I think he would have preferred, and I think O'Toole would have preferred that he come out on Tuesday, but it was it was simply too late. I, I think Dr. Yao and perhaps other people in cabinet said, it's just too dire, Premier. You, you have to go out there. We have a federal election, though, that's now timing with a provincial health crisis, a provincial economic crisis, and a provincial political crisis. And I expect starting tomorrow, and possibly even tonight, you're going to see members of the federal conservatives pointing the finger at Jason Kenney, that Jason Kenney cost Aaron Toole 
O'Toole the election. I'm not sure it's as simple as that. I think, you know, 10 days ago, we started to see a slide of, of O'Toole and a recovery of, of the Liberals. But this sure did not help. And it may have continued and extended an existing trend. But if I'm O'Toole, and I'm O'Toole's people, I want to shift the blame. And here you've got someone who had been such a prominent conservative, who has become front page news across the country, it's going to be easy for them to point fingers. And they're going to not do it through anonymous sources. I think they're going to go on the record. And what impact does that have? Because there is a lot of coordination between the federal conservatives and the provincial conservatives. Yeah, there is. And and it's interesting how much things have changed. I mean, Kenny was you know, obviously not just a potent political force here in Alberta, but but nationally he was, you know, maybe the, the highest profile conservative in the country, including the leader of the party. Oh, I, just, I, used, to call him, I right? used to call him the most powerful conservative in the country. And that wasn't an exaggeration. Yeah. You know, he overshone Andrew Scheer. He overshone Doug Ford. Mm-hmm. Uh, he campaigned in 2019 because he was at the height of his powers, I think, you know, because it was only a couple months after his, his big provincial election. Victory. He campaigned in Ontario. He campaigned in Manitoba, uh, and and then fast forward two years, and they tried to lock him in a box. We'll see what happens tonight and what kind of an impact it has uh, in Alberta and nationally uh, the rest of the week and beyond. Dwayne Bratt, appreciate the insight. Thanks for making some time for us here this afternoon. Okay, you're welcome, Rob. All right, take care. See you later. All right, there you go. Dwayne Bratt, uh, political scientist, Mount Royal University. So his thoughts on you know the the role that Alberta has played in this campaign in that Alberta's been more competitive. There's some seats up for grabs here, and Alberta's kind of been an issue elsewhere. Look, I don't know how it's going to go. I mean, if you ask me, if you put me on the spot, I would lean toward a liberal minority tonight. But I think it's still very much up in the air. It's a close election, but as we saw in 2019, a close election can work in the favor of the Liberal Party based on how the, the seats play out. But I don't know. I don't know. In terms of where things might have turned around for the liberals, I've, I've been of the position, I think, that you know, all this angry anti-vaccine sentiment has played into the hands of the liberals. I think maybe the moment where things started looking up a little bit for the liberals was when some of those protests got so out of hand that they had to cancel liberal events uh, because of security concerns. And since then, you know, Justin Trudeau has made a real show of, you know, showing how much he is willing to stand up to that crowd and really playing to those divisions the way he, you know, shouted at um, a protester, you know, don't you have a hospital to go protest at that sort of thing. I think the liberals have capitalized on that. I think conversely, you know, the people's party has capitalized on a lot of that. And I think both of those factors, I think has, has hurt the conservatives. Now I'm not writing off the conservatives at this point. I think they could still pull it out, but I, I think that that hasn't helped them. Anyway, your thoughts on uh, where things stand as Canadians cast their ballots today. 7.30 is when the polls close in Alberta. Of course, we're going to have full coverage uh, tonight right here, and uh, we'll see how things play out. My name is Rob Breckenridge. We're back with more right after this. I don't know how much political confluence there is between uh, two big things happening today. It is election day here in Alberta. It's also vaccine passport day or the restriction exemption program takes effect today, which means that there are restrictions in place for businesses like restaurants and gyms, etc. However, if those businesses require proof of vaccination from their patrons, then there are no restrictions. 
The province calls it a restriction exemption program. Everybody else calls it vaccine passport. We're talking about the same thing here. But look, this this came out as fast. Up until last Wednesday, the government's position was we ain't going to do this. Then on Wednesday, there was the premier saying, well, on second thought, I guess we're going to do it. And oh, by the way, get ready for it Monday. So business is scrambling to figure out, well, do we have to apply? How does this work? And now how do we enforce this? So for the moment, you can download and print off your vaccination records. Uh, There was an issue yesterday that the PDF was uh, you were able to edit it. And so I think there's a concern that are we going to see some uh, falsified uh, documents being presented? Sounds like a QR code is coming soon, though, something uh, scannable. Anyway, so, yes, I I think we're we're going to be navigating this uh, for a little while here to get the hang of it. What businesses, uh, what's expected of businesses, what's expected of customers. That's probably going to take a while, too, before we see any kind of meaningful benefit in terms of the COVID situation. And uh, we left ourselves a lot of wiggle room when it comes to the pressure on the healthcare system. But anyway, joining us to talk a bit about uh, this policy, how we got here, the um, the public health orders that create this and where there's potentially some some issues. Uh, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Sean Fluker, is a professor of law at the University of Calgary, co-authored uh, a deep dive into all of this at the U of C's Alberta Law Blog, which is ablaw, A-B-L-A-W-G dot C-A. He joins us on the line here this afternoon, Professor Fluker, great to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Uh, yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me, Rob. It's interesting. I mean, we're kind of in uncharted territory for Alberta with this this kind of a system. So how, how do we go about assessing something that's that's so new for us? Uh, well, I mean, it, you know, other provinces have, you know, have gone down the down the same path. So, mm-hmm. I mean, we could compare um, what Alberta is implementing versus, you know, what's been implemented in uh, in the other provinces. Uh, in territories across the country, um, but as well, you know, a lot of what's been implemented here, uh, you know, late last week and today, is um, you know really a renewal of of many of the of the public health restrictions that we've been we've been living with now for um, the better part of a year and a half. Right, and yeah, and I think you know the the way it was announced last week almost seemed initially to to people like these restrictions were coming back, and well, hang on a second here because here's the whole exemption side of it. Um, so let, let's go through it. I mean, let's let's start with the positive here, and you know where you see some some potential good coming from this. Yeah, well, um, you know, in the piece, we just we just make the obvious point that you know the province had to act, and. Um, even if there are problems with, you know, what they came up with, and there certainly are some, um, you know, it's better than, than not acting at all. And, and you know, that's, um, I mean, I think that's the most obvious uh, uh, thing to note. Something had to be done. The province acted, um, albeit, I think, too late. Um, but nonetheless, you know, something was, some steps were taken. So in, in terms of the, the implementation of this, so this is, um, uh, well, two orders. In fact, these are two orders from the Chief Medical Officer of Health, 42-2021 and 43-2021. So what, what did these, these health orders actually do? Sure. So, um, so 42-2021, is the, it's the main order, if you like, that sets, you know, really establishes uh, the renewed restrictions. So it... 
you know, runs through the list of, you know, everybody must wear a mask in all indoor and outdoor places. You must keep two meters from uh, each other. In some cases, actually, it's three meters now. Um, there's restrictions on <clears throat> capacity and businesses. You've got uh, renewed restrictions on having people over to your home, um, things in relation to schools, uh, places of worship. So, I mean, again, it's a, it's a familiar list to yeah. us. Um, the difference now is that you've got 43-2021, which basically says, um, you know, for businesses, um, you know, other than masking, um, if you comply with the requirements in 43-2021, which is, you know, require uh, proof of vaccination or evidence of a negative COVID test at the door, um, you don't have to comply with the, for example, the occupancy restrictions um, or the, you know, having to ensure that people who are entering your premise fall within the same cohort um, or the, you know, the, the, those sorts of things. Yeah. So that, that, that's the big difference today. So this Order 43 in 2021, as you note in the piece, it sets up this regulatory system for those that are in scope here and those that are out of scope are not eligible. And maybe there's some obvious ones, restaurants, as, as one clear example. But it does appear, and you talk about it in the piece, that there's there's still some confusion. I mean, universities as, as one example. Yeah. And so my, you know, obviously I work at the University of Calgary and uh, a lot of confusion over the last few days on, um, you know, whether the university is on that out-of-scope list, which means, of course, those those entities that are on what the order describes as out-of-scope are entities which, you know, can't participate in the vaccine um, passport system, right? And so there was some attention to that given that retail uh, premises and the like were surprised that they were on that side of the ledger but yeah the university of calgary being a post-secondary institution the order mentions schools but it doesn't specifically say post-secondary um the government's website says that the uh the government will issue a what it calls a sector specific exemption for post-secondary institutions um i'm led to believe that that's coming today but um as of as of now I, i haven't seen it so i mean it's a it's essential for post-secondary because, of course, universities and colleges uh, clearly can't comply with 42-2021 in relation to right. physical distancing and the like. So those businesses are those entities that are in scope. So for for those that require proof of vaccination, they are eligible for the, the restriction exemption program. But in terms of how they enforce that, do, do we have some clarity as to what's required of the, the businesses that are participating or, or how this is all going to be overseen? We don't. Um, I mean, the order requires them to to uh, to get proof of vaccination. The government's website uh, under the restrictions exemption program does lay out um, sort of what that can consist of. Um, again, as well, uh, alternatively, proof of a negative COVID test. And, and as you and I'm sure your listeners can imagine, um, you know, there's been lots of different ways in which that negative test um might be documented, but the government's website does describe uh, sort of what documentation is acceptable and what is not. And, you know, frankly, um, it's, it's, 
very, just to put it lightly, it's very unrealistic to expect businesses to uh, implement a system like this with, you know, next to zero notice. Right. And yeah, I think a lot of this is, is scrambling to figure all of this out. Now, what about potential legal issues that might arise here? Um, you know, one of them being, and you talk about it in, in the piece, uh, is is this something that can be implemented under the legal authority of, of the Chief Medical Officer of Health? What's your sense of that? Yeah, well, um, and I've been writing about that for, for quite a while now, and I've, I've had a concern that, you know, the Chief Medical Officer of Health in Alberta anyways hasn't been given the authority that she needs in the Public Health Act to um, to legislate generally like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned in the piece, uh, what surprises me is the, the legislature did amend the Public Health Act in June of this year to tr- sort of clarify that. Um, but the uh, cabinet, as far as I can tell, um, hasn't proclaimed those amendments into force. So here we find ourselves on September 20th, where the statute remains as it was throughout the pandemic. And it it really doesn't explicitly give the chief medical officer of health the authority to be, you know, uh, making these sort of wide, you know, general, uh, you know, proclamations of law, other than uh, there there is a section in the act which says, you know, she can take whatever steps she deems necessary to address the pandemic and i mean i guess we can we can fit everything into that box but um you know that's a that's a pretty wide um swath of rules to fit into a a piece of legislation which historically has really been you know the chief medical officer of health has historically sort of addressed specific areas or targeted regions of the province in relation to communicable diseases and the like and obviously covid is um much different than that. Uh, you know, previously, is, is you know, the Alberta government obviously did a did a 180 on this. Their previous opposition to this kind of a system was premised in part, at least, by, you know, in terms of what they said on, you know, concerns about the legality of this kind of an approach or privacy concerns. Did you see where anything here might potentially be open to some kind of a challenge? Well, um, I think, you know, let me do one explanation for why the government has structured the approach the way it has, which is to say it, it, it's giving itself at least the argument to say that, you know, uh, we, we're, we're giving we're giving everybody a choice, basically. Yeah, right. So that, that's sort of the essence of the of the discretionary approach that Alberta has followed here, which is, I, I think, giving them the ability to say, like, we're not we're not actually requiring anybody to necessarily, you know, do certain things, um, other than say masking, for example, um, which is uh, already a requirement that's been really unsuccessfully challenged in the legal system in Canada many times over here. So, I mean that that I think that uh, that explains the approach they've taken really, and and I don't think there is a clear answer to to what the legal outcome might be in that regard should it get uh, litigated. We'll see where this all goes from here. As mentioned, uh, more at uh, the uh, Alberta Law Blog, ablawg.ca. Professor Fluker, appreciate your input on all this. Thanks for joining us here today. You're welcome, Rob. There you go. That's uh, Sean Fluker. He's a professor of law at the University of Calgary and uh, his thoughts on kind of the good and the bad of this uh, new vaccine passport approach. And yeah, I think certainly there is still some, some confusion here as we now uh, embark down this path. And you know, for how long will we be doing this? 
Uh, anyway, I want to uh, get to our next guest here, and I'm, I suppose in a way, I mean, some of this ties to to uh, issues at the federal level. I mean, there's a new photo uh, that's emerged today of the prime minister uh, in blackface, and that came up in the last election. But in terms of the issues that maybe haven't come up, conversations about race and racism, reconciliation, and some of these issues that have loomed so large over the last year. Uh, we avoided some some difficult conversations. Uh, there's a new book out uh, that aims to to well facilitate those conversations, have those conversations, add something important to those conversations, uh, and to offer a perspective maybe that that I think a lot of Canadians perhaps need to better understand. Uh, Ian Williams is an author, a poet. He's a, a Scotiabank Giller Prize winner, and his latest book, collection of ex- essays, is called Disorientation: Being Black in the World. Now, there's an event happening tomorrow. It's part of WordFest in their 26 at 26 series. More details at WordFest.com. But Ian Williams joins us on the line here this afternoon. Ian, great to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Rob. You know, like I said, I mean, you know, this the, the conversation that started last year in, in the protest uh, and, and the rallies that we saw all across North America, it almost feels like, I don't know, as a society, did, did people just decide to move on? Where, where did that Where did that momentum go? Right. Well, I mean, there's a kind of sort of news cycle and things, and the pandemic has really dominated the news for the last year or so. But it has, uh, it's still, the issues are still present. The yeah. issues were here before, uh, before the news sort of took it up. Um, what's interesting, though, is that we've had a little bit of a pause to kind of reflect during the pandemic in that kind of isolated time, sort of gather our thoughts and to gather our positions, and then to emerge from this sort of wiser and more humane people. I want to see if it happens. Now, as I understand, the, 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 maybe the idea for this book, or this all came about last summer then, as we were kind of in, in the midst of all of this. Is that correct? That's true. Yeah. So a few things were happening, right? The pandemic was gaining steam here in North America. Uh, there were the justice protests movements all across the country and the world. Uh, and then there were like these wildfires that were happening out west when I was living in Vancouver. And it did feel kind of apocalyptic, right? All of these things, uh, climate change and political unrest, all of these things coming to a head simultaneously. Um, I was working on a different book at the time, and I had to put it away and concentrate on this one. Well, and there's a lot of ways of having this conversation. We can look at it in a historical sense. We can have broad policy mm-hmm. conversations. But I, I think your approach here is to sort of tell it from the personal level, right? The, the mm-hmm. disorientation, as the title implies, about mm-hmm. being black, about being racialized in, in a country like mm-hmm. Canada. What, what were you hoping then to, to bring to the conversation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we generally think about race as an African-American kind of thing, something that happens south of the border between whites and blacks in America. Uh, but there's a whole range of experience beyond the black American experience that often gets over because it doesn't involve guns and it doesn't involve people kneeling on the necks of black people. And so that subtlety, uh, the kind of middle class nature of racism in this country um, can very easily be be overlooked. And so I wanted to talk about other varieties of blackness, right? other ways of being black. Uh, in this country, and other forms that uh, race relations take. So the title, for instance, Disorientation, refers to um, this idea that as a black man, I don't go through life thinking about I am a black man at every interaction, right? I'm not yeah. at the Tim Hortons donut line thinking I'm a black man about to buy a chocolate donut, yeah. right? But occasionally there will be these things, these events that rise up and remind me of my blackness in a way that it doesn't remind, uh, say, white folks of their whiteness. And every time that happens, every time 
uh, you know, someone gets a little bit guarded or the conversation stops when I enter the room or, you know, the where are you from question. Every time that happens, I'm reminded of that blackness and I have to be, oh, okay, it's a little bit disorienting, right? You get snapped out of buying your donut and suddenly you think about, oh, here's a 400-year tradition um, of race relations about to play out now. Well, and it's interesting, and, and I've, I've tried to explain this to people before, and I, I think people mm. bristle at the term white privilege because I think there's a mm. lot of white people who don't feel as though, you know, they've lived a life of privilege. But just the mm-hmm. idea that white Canadians can just sort of stop if they want and not mm-hmm. think about race, that there is that mm-hmm. luxury to sort of turn that off if, if right. they're so inclined. But that, that's not the reality for a lot right. of other Canadians. It's so true, right? The privilege is the kind of invisibility of race, that you can function without the race determining your, your whereabouts, your movements. The race doesn't determine whether um, you should be in a particular place at night uh, for fear of being a threat, right? Um, you can live very freely in, in a society. That's a privilege. Um, but, and its invisibility really is, is a luxury, as, as you say. Um, most of us, uh, most people of color, we don't have that. Right? We're constantly reminded of, of, of how we're perceived. Um, we can't move through the world with such ease and carefreeness. Um, and yeah, that takes its toll. Is, is part of this, and is it even possible, can you really mm. say to, to a white person, here's what it's like to, to mm. walk in the shoes of a black person? Can, mm. can that perspective be conveyed, do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, we all have the capacity for empathy, right? We all have the capacity to understand what it's like to be a pregnant woman, though it's impossible, say, for you know, for me to be to be pregnant. What it must feel like, and so we are constantly doing this kind of metaphoric dance of, you know, um, I feel heavy today. Is that something like what it's like? And it's always a crude approximation. Um, but there are instances where disorientation can say happen for a white person, right? Like if I drop you in Seoul, Korea right now, and you're the only white man in, in the airport or whatever, you're suddenly very hyper aware of your whiteness. Um, and now to use that as an empathetic bridge and to think, oh, is this what it's like for Charlie in the office every single day that he comes into work, right, to be the only black guy in the space? So, yeah, I, I mean, there are forays that we make into other people's lives and worlds, right, if we're open to it. And it's interesting in the parallel, though, because, you know, as, as, as aware as that white person would be of, of their whiteness and, and perhaps mm-hmm. even those around also noticing it, the question mm-hmm. of when it becomes racism, right, and when mm-hmm. it becomes something that, that's more insidious. Right. Yeah, right. That's always hard to know. And so when white folks ask for proof, um, it becomes hard for, for a person of color to say, here's the evidence. You know, it's not like, you know, um, getting secondary sources in a university essay or so. You right, don't just yeah. kind of say, here's a quotation for what happened to me. But uh, to understand that the evidence is very layered, right? So when one thing happens in a department store to me, it's in fact superimposed upon a whole history of these kinds of occurrences. So I've got a sensitivity to these things, to, the, to those looks, to that tone, to that sort of ignored service that a white person doesn't have. And to sort of render... Uh, this, as a racist occurrence, means telling you 42 years of walking into, um, I don't know, Hold Renfrews or whatever, you know? You, you mentioned the, you know, the perception about this as, as an American phenomenon, and, and does mm. that, I don't know if, it, if it's apathy or just that sense that mm. 
this isn't as much of an issue here. Therefore, mm-hmm. the, the Canada hasn't had maybe the, the kinds of conversations that are necessary. Mm-hmm. Do, do we, is it convenient enough to just point to the U.S. and say, well, that's, that's where there's more of a problem and then kind of lets us off the hook? Right. Everything's like amplified in the U.S., right? It seems yeah. bigger and, and more pronounced there. And so I think we get away with thinking because it's quieter here, it's not, not so important. But also I think what's motivating that kind of action is um, the fear of getting it wrong, right? The fear of <laughs> the consequences of saying the wrong thing, having these uh, conversations that go awry. Um, so if we could, I, in the first step, I sort of talk about this. How do we get um, into the space where we can have these conversations without fear of doing damage to each other? or fear of, like, retaliation. Um, and that's the first thing, right, to sort of shore up our courage um, and to take those chances and those risks and to say half-formed things in relatively safe spaces until we get it right. It's like language learning, right? You know, you can study your grammar uh, from textbooks uh, till the cows come home, uh, but until you start using that language and until you make those mistakes in public and all of that, you're never really going to improve and so I think the same thing with race conversation. We've got to be courageous enough to try to use our language uh, to understand each other. And in, in striving for colorblindness and, you know, the, the Martin Luther King ideal of, you know, judging people mm. by their character, not by the color of their skin, it's, mm. it's a noble goal. But, you know, we, we, if we just decided today, okay, as of tomorrow, we're, we're just going to stop caring about race issues are we then ignoring issues that, that first need to be addressed? Is is it about mm. perception or is it about things that are more systemic? Right, yeah. Definitely there are two levels of this happening, at least two levels here. There's the kind of personal and the systemic. And, and uh, the third essay there, I talk about whiteness, and I give 10 bullets on whiteness. Um, and this idea that there's a difference between whiteness and white people. There, white people can suddenly decide to say, hey, uh, race doesn't matter, I have to go forward as a non-racist person in all respects, um, but there's still a system that is built around kind of white supremacist ideas. I know that rhetoric sounds inflated, right? White supremacist um, ideas. Um, right. Well, it that, sounds, you know, like aggressive skinheads with right. their, their swastika yeah. tattoos, and right, that's what it conveys to people. Yeah, Absolutely, right? So it kind of shuts things down. But when your society is structured on a certain class of people always ruling, and it's gendered to always ruling and always having the last word and making decisions about interest rates or whatever and affordability for people. Mm-hmm. Um, that is beyond an individual white person's good intentions, right? That's something systemic that requires all of us to, to you know, gradually or suddenly dismantle to break that down. But we got to see it. So there's a personal level. There's, you know, the good hearts of, of people. Um, and then there's this monster that we've created, not us necessarily, but over centuries of time well in terms of what you want people to get from the from the book i mean mm. like i don't think you you said i'm going to write this you know for a white audience i, I think mm. obviously part of the hope is that that a white audience can read this and, and gain some further understanding and empathy but right. who is it aimed at and what, what do you want people to take from it yeah you know what like when books get so didactic towards a white audience you know mm. i'm the black uh you know evangelist who's now right. going to educate you about all white things I just don't think that's how we learn. That's not how, you know, life works. Yeah. And so I didn't want to do any of that. I don't position myself as a kind of race guru or expert. I'm not some kind of yogi. Mm-hmm. Um, I really just want to honestly say, here, here's what it's like. Um, here's how I see you. Here's how you're constantly, what I see in your face when you look at me. 
Um, and let's talk about this more genuinely. I'm not going to hold a whip or a punishment. I'm not going to, you know, chop your head off in a guillotine over this. Um, if you bring your best for- self forward, I'm bringing my best self forward. That's all there is to it, right? A very clean and simple communication from one human being to another. I think it's a good way to look at it. Well, as mentioned, this conversation is happening tomorrow night, uh, part of the WordFest 26, a 26 series, WordFest.com. And the book is out now. It's called Disorientation, Being Black in the World. Ian Williams, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Thanks, Rob. Have a good day. You as well. All the best. Uh, there you go. That's uh, award-winning author and poet uh, Ian Williams, his latest book, a collection of ex- essays. It's called Disorientation, Being Black in the World. Uh, more details at uh, wordfest.com, as mentioned uh, on that event happening tomorrow night. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.